Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 2020 has been a bit of an unpredictable year all round, but I doubt that anyone thought it would be the year that Theo Gegenhardt won the Giro in October. It should have been the year that Team GB's track riders reasserted their superiority at the Tokyo Olympics. Team Pursuiters Eleanor Barker and Katie Archibald are interviewed in the current edition of Rouleur magazine, and they're on this podcast, along with Chris Jones, who's written a fascinating story about growing up as one of the few black cyclists in Baltimore. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Well, the strangest road racing season in living memory is drawing to a close. No one can say it wasn't interesting. And about now, a lot of us will be turning our attention to the tracks with the six-day series and World Cup races. But for obvious reasons, a lot of that has been disrupted as well. The current edition of Rouleur magazine, issue 20.7, includes an interview by the Paralympic athlete Hannah Dines with two stars of Team GB, Eleanor Barker and Katie Archibald, and I'm delighted that they can both join us on this podcast. Uh, Eleanor and Katie, how have you been doing? Yeah, I've been doing all right, thanks. I mean, it's getting a bit monotonous, to be honest, um, and I feel like we've all been saying that for about five months now, so it's... Yeah, it's really been dragging on, but hopefully for us, we're going to have Europeans in about two weeks' time. Um, so that's quite exciting. We're, we're getting on to like the verge of the um, exciting part of the racing season for us now. Because you managed to uh, squeeze in the World Championships, didn't you, in, in Berlin, sort of just before everything started to close down. Yeah, I, it seems really bizarre to look back at it because that was kind of the first conversations I've really had about coronavirus were at Berlin um I think when we got on the plane to leave I had very very little knowledge of it didn't consider that it'd be something that would impact us and then within a few weeks the whole world had changed the Olympics had got cancelled and we couldn't leave the house and nothing was at all what we thought it was going to be in hindsight we were unbelievably lucky to even be able to be racing in Berlin and it's weird isn't it because it's almost like if you were going to design a sport which might be problematic in the middle of a pandemic like COVID, uh, indoor track racing would be uh, would be one of the worst, wouldn't it? It's the joke about uh, Madison being this 120 laps of hand holding, um, and now we don't go within two meters of each other, and uh, you certainly don't hold hands. <laughs> I guess any stadium sport, uh, it's part of the allure of track. You know, we're more our spectator sport is people buying tickets more so than any TV coverage. Yeah, it's 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 a blow. Katie, what have you been doing? How have you managed to um, keep 
training throughout the whole thing have you had much indoor time or has it mainly been on the road uh have we been doing pretty well um i think if you'd caught us 48 hours earlier we were preparing for poland gp um and uh, it just got cancelled <laughs> so um mood could have been slightly higher but uh, like eleanor said uh, the uec are still giving reassurance that everything's in place um for a safe running of the europeans in in two weeks time so it's been really nice this past month to be into a build into very specific preparation and kind of put to practice all of the silver linings that we've been touting for months and months about the consistency of training and reduction of travel and all these other outside stresses of that we could just be so focused and so pernickety I suppose um with with a periodized training plan in a way that life doesn't usually allow for but it, it's all no good if we uh yeah like we say if we don't get to put it to the test but that that is what's coming uh, and ultimately that I mean even if everything got cancelled between now and Tokyo that is still the uh, the ultimate the ultimate test well fingers crossed and uh, has the racing itself changed I mean you joked about the Madison but you know can you actually run a Madison in in these conditions presumably if the, everyone's in the same bubble you may be able to yeah I feel like that's the funny thing about bubbles is that um yeah I know a few people that have got about six different bubbles on the go and then if you add in a, a Madison with 34 riders all from different countries you're just in in one huge international bubble um, which doesn't really work does it but as far as I know we can race Madison um I mean if you can race the Giro for three weeks with 180 riders starting um, and all the staff that are involved in that as well I, I think we can probably run a Madison as well. Now we've had a few attempts on this podcast to explain the Madison to those who aren't familiar with it but in uh, this edition of Rouleur I think you two are the first people to compare it to the works of Shakespeare. God it sounds really profound when I put it like that. Um, I think we basically were just trying to say that there's a lot going on and there's a lot of different stories going on concurrently within the Madison so while one team might have a great seamless flawless race and not think that it was dangerous or stressful at any point another team might be having a completely different experience just because they're five six seven riders back and so they've got a lot more to contest with yeah is essentially what we're trying to say but uh, it didn't mean to come out as quite as profound as you made it sound there um I, I think for me it's the uh hopefully next year the UCI World Track Cycling League will kick off and this will be a commercial race series and um, it'll be different to a lot of track racing at the moment is linked to the World Cups which most people attend as part of your national team um, and there are some trade teams so the, the big news everyone heard about was trade teams being taken out of the World Cups but this is so that we can hopefully channel some of that commercial interest into um, the UCI World League um, and so the the season that that'll run I'm getting to Shakespeare I promise but the first season that'll run is next winter and the program is going to be a scratch race and an elimination race and a Kieran and a match sprint so but for us as endurance riders scratch race elimination race they're trying to build interest around the the iconic events because it is about who crosses the finish line first it's simple you know a scratch race who crosses the finish line first and elimination race who is still left there at the end and you can engage with that you can turn on the telly and within two seconds you understand that event and you can kind of get in the same way with a road race you know um it might be 250k and nobody's watching the first <laughs> the first 200 and 230 say but the first person across the line at the end and so the, this is kind of how we got into this uh it's not an argument but madison doesn't have a place 
in a two second explanation. It is a combination of everything that you need to be successful in the track. It's all of the tactics, it's all of the technical elements, it's all of the it's all of the speed and it's all of the physiology. You will never win a medicine by luck because the the reliance on all of these fundamental parts of track cycling is so big and it's the the, the coalescence of of these elements. And so the anybody ever asked you if you're going to be stranded on a desert island, do you want um, the complete works of Shakespeare or do you want every episode of Family Guy? And it's a horrible question because I'm sure there are some big Family Guy fans that will tell me about all of the uh, the nuance in whatever episode 72, you know. But the idea is that if you're going to be spending the rest of your life with this thing, the complete works of Shakespeare have so much more to go in. There's um, there's so much more depth. <laughs> there's there's so much more that you will, for the rest of your life, take from these works about the, the meaning of life. And so for me, that's do you want to watch a handful of scratch races which are brilliant you know I, I i actually i watch far more family guy than i do read shakespeare but for me the the scratch races family guy and the madison is shakespeare okay i understand that i think um mark cavendish said on this podcast a while ago that the only place you can actually understand the madison really is from the middle of one if you're actually riding one i think it's because you don't have to understand everything if you're in the middle of it kind of what el was saying of um all of these different narratives uh, that if you're all you need to understand is your engagement if you're in the middle of it you need to see what position am I who do I need to be better than you don't care what Slovakia is up to <laughs> and I guess that's when you're in the stands and you're you're trying to engage with every one of these narratives that's when it gets confusing you just follow your own story when you're in the middle of it. Now, Eleanor I know you turned up at Hearn Hill Velodrome um, a while ago to do an open meeting there was that just because you you wanted to race yeah, yeah, I really want to race. I really wanted to race with Tekus, the club that I started riding with at the start of this year um, and haven't actually had a chance to meet most of my teammates yet. And yeah, I think just knowing that there are going to be so few chances to race between now and the Olympics, I know that I need to make the most of every single Madison opportunity that I have. I realised around September that I hadn't actually been in a bunch. I mean, we weren't allowed to ride even with one other person for like four months when we were going out on the road so yeah to go from being completely on my own to then having a whole bunch of unpredictable wheels around me yeah just seemed like quite a big step up to do in one go so unfortunately there wasn't actually any Madison at Herne Hill um but I think having a day of just racing and just being part of a group again and the unpredictability of it was well, it's hopefully going to be beneficial when we do actually get to race on the track at some point. Katie, have you missed the competition element or are you one of those people that enjoys the training as much? Who enjoys the training? Yeah, no, I've met those people. I enjoy the training because I enjoy getting better. Um, But the reason I want to get better is for this fantasy of turning up to a race and winning it. So when I say I love racing, I would want to race every weekend. it's, It's not a rational decision. I'm actually sort of follow through on um but it just it races make me feel good you know um very much just in the moment enjoy being on a start line uh, I get really nervous beforehand I quite often get really low afterwards but it's it's kind of worth the the rush and the high feeling in your element knowing that you're doing something that that you're good at which I don't regularly get with training I'm very bad <laughs> very bad at training but um yeah it feels nice to it was nice to race. The interview with Hannah in Rouleur is fascinating on a, a number of subjects, including including actually motivation. Um, and and you uh, a couple of times say that you're kind of a little bit impatient with the idea that athletes are struggling to prove themselves or escaping from terrible trauma. 
I think I bought into that a lot when I was younger and I used it as an explanation for why. Um, and I guess I probably still do sometimes if I'm feeling awful, if you're beating yourself up, if you're kind of pulling your chest to pieces, thinking, well, this is what it means to aspire to something excellent. This level of anxiety is the, the necessary level for greatness. And it's a conversation I could open up quite naturally with Hannah because I didn't feel like I needed to have the answer yet uh, because I, I definitely don't. And I, I guess what I'm complaining about is a promotion of one way or the other. So uh, Johnny Wilkinson did an interview with the High Performance podcast with um, Jake Humphrey. It was really interesting to me because he's talking about a lot of Buddhist mindsets really or Buddhist ideologies um, and they kept saying to him okay but if you if you lived this way when you were a player would you have been the best in the world like did you need the perfectionism did you need the crushing anxiety did you need the the crippling hunt for self-worth to, to be as good as you were and it's not something I feel they got an answer out of Johnny Wilkinson on, on that occasion but I think it comes up all the time and there definitely has to be a middle ground between saying that you need to be a tortured soul if you're going to be Olympic champion versus making out like we're all happy. And I guess that's it's probably more consequence of the media than the individuals that that share these stories is that it gets simplified into, I guess, into a headline. Um, and as a as a younger person, I just consumed all these headlines and thought, well, you know, I read Victoria Penston's autobiography and thought, Jesus, is that if, is that what it's like? <laughs> if, if that's what it's like, I guess. You know, me and every other teenage girl that hates themselves when they wake up and when I guess we're on track and we'll just stick with it, you know, rather than trying to reset and think that there's, yeah, I suppose a way to function and be happy and still be the best. I, I got lost halfway through in there. Elle, can you save that at all? <laughs> I <laughs> no, think I Eleanor's think, probably got a better hold of it. I just think it's incredibly personal and I can understand how a lot of people will go out and exercise to escape something. And we all know that it's it's good for your mental health, it's good for your head, it's good for letting off steam. And so I can see how that's how a lot of people get into being an athlete in, in whatever sport that might be. But also, yeah, same, also read Vicky Pendleton's book. And I think that kind of, the really tough time that she was going through seemed to to work for her and it resulted in medals. But I also know a lot of people whose, whose motto is literally just happy heads, fast legs. And so many people live by that and just need to be, happy in their personal life so that then they can focus all their energy on training and racing properly yeah and I think there's there's room for that as well but I, I definitely think it's very very personal and can't be uh, like there's no blanket statement for it or one size fits all or anything I think I'll hit the nail in the head there that seems I mean it sounds obvious of the idea it's personal but I used to always get frustrated with any kind of environment that you'd enter so not not just to say like a governing body like British Cycling, but whether it might be, you know, your local swimming club or whatever, that there might be this baptism of fire, the idea that if you want to make it, you've got to be hard, the sort of the army mindset, if you've got to go through these trials and tribulations, because if, if you're going to be the best in the world, then you have to be able to take this at this stage, this amount of pressure and this amount of, we'll call it hardship, but I guess it's just like pushing people about a bit as though there was only one way to create a champion. And so you end up ridding the system of the people that needed the softer touch might still have had just as many fast switch muscle fibers, just as much dedication, just as much mitochondria or whatever, the, the, the same physical cap capability. But because the, the sort of global narrative is the idea that you have to go through the spectrum of fire. And if you're not mentally strong, then you're not going to make it. That I know really with certainty is wrong. If you sort of frame it that way, then for sure it's, it's about recognizing what individuals need. Um, and not all is in need a uh, yeah night and day anxiety I was just gonna say I was literally having this conversation yesterday like reminiscing with someone about 
talent team days was when we were, um, I think it's between like 14 and 17 because the age brackets changed around a bit. But the training camps a lot of the time were nothing to do with actually getting you prepared for the bike race or being fast. It was just saying who wants it enough to do this thing that's really hard just for the sake of being hard. Like I think every single day we had to do 15 minutes of rollers at 5 a.m. And the 15 minutes of rollers isn't going to make you a better athlete. But it was all about testing whether you will complain when you've only had five or six hours sleep or something like that. So I'm kind of glad that we're sort of moving away from things just being tough just to see just to see who's good at that specific tough thing um, rather than who's good at the event. And do you think generally that's changing? Do you think that we, because that's been the dominant narrative for so long, hasn't it? Do you think, do you think that um, elite sport is changing? Yeah, because I think it's been the dominant narrative, but it's not been the dominant success model. So when you look at, uh, let's compare, um, this isn't my comparison, I just heard, I'm literally just repeating somebody else's conversation that I heard um, on the internet somewhere. But So if you compare a sort of Tiger Woods character that specializes age three and is really tuned into the specific thing that they want to be good at and trains as a golfer for hours and hours and hours and people start touting this 10,000 hour rule and so on, compared to um, a Roger Federer who, as I understand it, did a lot of different sports didn't specialize until he was something like 15 or like that and that's when he starts getting serious about tennis and so on and so the one that gets all the airtime is the Tiger Woods story it's the kid that's wanted this since they were five years old you know and that stated I'm gonna be Olympic champion um but in reality it's way more common for it to be the Roger Federer way kind of it was that way for me you know I didn't do my first bike race till I was 16 I wasn't really properly racing until I was 17 I tried 100 different sports likewise I can think of several teammates that are that way of it it doesn't it doesn't have to have been everything that you wanted from age 14 so when they're there pushing you saying like the the example l gave of like if you really want if you want to be the best in the world you've got to be focused on this goal yeah it doesn't make sense and and doesn't marry up with who actually becomes the the champions that we actually create so um i do yeah i do think i do think it's changing Eleanor and Katie, uh, good luck for the next few months, whatever it brings, and good luck for next year. Um, thank you so much for joining us. All right, short and sweet. Thank you. You're listening to Ruler Conversations, brought to you by LACA, bicycle insurance powered by the community. LACA's collective cover is made especially for cyclists for life on and off your bike. They've transformed traditional insurance to provide customers with a fairer, collective-driven approach to cycle insurance. Say goodbye to fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your maximum monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. And they have some big news. LACA will be running its first ever crowdfunding campaign and offering equity for the pack. Cyclists have helped LACA bring a much better model of insurance to the masses. That's why they want to invite you to join the ride. They're pleased to be able to give Ruler listeners the opportunity to own a part of LACA. You can invest in the future of LACA from as little as £10 and become a huge part of their collective. To register and to find out more about LACA's crowdfunding campaign, head to LACA.co. Remember that when investing your capital is at risk, that announcement was approved by Cedars. Ruler 20.7 also includes interviews with Wout van Aert and Caleb Ewan, and a visit to an extraordinary collection of Paris-Roubaix-related memorabilia and artwork, including the painting of Gilbert Duclos-Lassalle, which made it to the cover. You can buy single copies of 20.7 on the Ruler website, or even better, take out a subscription. Listen to the voice of the tour. Now then. 
Here's an infomercial message for the discerning folk of Rulerland. For the finest long-form cycling journalism and exquisite photography and design, why don't you simply subscribe to Ruler magazine? It costs as little as £7 per month. Regular columnists include Orla Shenwi, Roma Badet and me, Ned Bolting, accompanied by features from the best writers and photographers in the business. Simply go to ruler.cc. You know it makes sense. Well, one of the most interesting articles in Ruler 20.7 is by Chris Jones, a designer and amateur cyclist from Baltimore, who provides a fascinating insight into his experience as a black cyclist in America. Well, Chris joins us now. Um, Chris, welcome. First of all, how did you first become interested in cycling? How old were you? As a kid, I I had a bunch of friends who all had uh, BMX bikes, but I was not very good at riding BMX bikes. I remember my earliest days were trying to see who could do the the biggest power slide down the street. And I remember once falling off and falling under a car, but I had won the power slide contest. And so I was like really happy. What then happened was I had um, an uncle who left a 10 speed at at, at my house, which, you know, 10 speed, I'm old enough to where, you know, that's what they used to call them. And uh, even though I was much shorter, I used to have to stop at the curb in order so that the bike wouldn't tip over. Um, he basically left the bike and I basically rode it. Um, and I rode that bike for a good little while. And then my family got me my own um, road bike and I just rode all over. But you talk about the sort of almost unspoken knowledge that parts of Baltimore, and not necessarily different to other cities in the States or elsewhere, uh, weren't safe or welcoming to black people. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing because Baltimore uh, historically is considered a a, a city with really strong segregation lines. So like where the black folks live, where the Jewish folks live, where the white folks live, we're all like pretty well defined. As a really young kid, it's not as if I, I, I rode into white areas. I didn't exactly know where they were. Later on, my parents stayed divorced and then I moved with my dad for a year and he lived in an area that was that bordered a white area. That's kind of where I sort of found out because you know, riding around there, then I was like, okay. So you I rode into an area where they literally would chase you out of there you were black. I mean, and, and it's funny because um, I actually uh, ended up on a, a committee with a, with a guy who lives in my neighborhood now. And he said, oh, yeah, that happened to me, too. You know, welcome to the club kind of thing. And I was like, yeah, yeah. You mentioned in the article something called the Green Book, uh, which apparently doesn't exist anymore. But I think a lot of people won't know what the Green Book was. What what was it? Like you mentioned in the intro, I'm a graphic designer and um, I, I did a, a tourism brochure for the city of Baltimore. And in the research, I had to essentially find out what the Green Book is. There was a Black postal worker who took it upon himself to connect with people he knew in other towns to string the areas in most major, I guess, travel areas where Blacks were welcome. So like, for instance, like if you were a Black person in New York and you were gonna like maybe travel to the Midwest or something, you wouldn't know where to stop. I mean, 
in those days, you, you, you have what they call sundown towns where you, you're not supposed to be, if you're black, you're not supposed to be out past a certain time or, or even there. You'd stop in some town and, and they didn't want to serve you. So you'd have to know kind of where to stop. And what the Green Book was, is it, it was essentially a, a, a guide for where you could stop as an African-American. And how long ago was that? Don't, don't get me to lying. I'm sure, I'm sure Wikipedia could, could correct me on this, but um, I, would, I would have to go with, uh, I would say probably 40s, 50s, because, you know, that's kind of an era where, where people really got to traveling a lot you know, by car and that sort of thing. From my sort of limited knowledge of cycling in America, I've always had the sense that it's been more of a kind of middle-class college kid activity than it might be in the UK or in, in Europe. Uh, was that a factor in, in how you felt as a, as, a, as a black cyclist when you were younger? That's, a, I think, an intriguing question because um, I think you're right. And, of course, this is the kind of thing I only knew once I was a little older, in Baltimore, it, it does seem as if, it, well, just by anywhere I've gone in the United States, cycling is middle class and up kind of activity. I mean, whether it's only whites seem to be interested in it. I mean, and that's not true. I know some black guys who who ride as well. But the prevailing notion is, is that blacks are uh, not really interested in cycling. To me, the, the common denominator, the thing that, that I really love about cycling is that it boils down to, to access. I mean, as a kid, I went to private school. And so, you know, so let's fast forward a little bit from the earlier years, like nine, but when I was about 14, 15, 16, that was my main method of transportation. I just love to ride and I love to get around places. That's kind of really what got me going. And to your point, Right at about that point, I realized how much I really did like it and went uh, riding with the cycling team at school. You know, I, I remember that first time I described this in the, in the piece, but uh, I remember first time seeing um, this guy's Bianchi and like toe clips and all that. And I was like, wow, it just made my, my bike feel like crap. I mean, I bought my bike at a, a flea market for 25 bucks and carried it home on the bike that I was riding and thought I was doing something. So. Yeah, it was just kind of an, it was kind of an interesting thing for me. But do you suspect that um, a number of uh, black people are generally put off by feeling that perhaps cycling isn't for them? I guess the numbers kind of suggest that. Yes, I think uh, it's a two way street in the sense that there's probably zero marketing focused on working to get the the black cyclists who are interested engaged. And I'll just say this because um, I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with um, Major Taylor. I, I, I'd assume maybe you, you knew who Major Taylor was. Yes. But there are gobs and gobs of black cycling groups who go on Major Taylor memorial rides in the United States. And that right there is, is a seed toward connecting with them in terms of marketing and trying to get an audience that's focused on watching or appreciating Grand Tours or local racing as it is, you know what I mean? And I don't know to what degree cycling even focuses on any of that, you know what I mean? I, I just, I just, they, I think there's an assumption that maybe Black folks only love the, uh, the big three U.S. sports, you know, basketball, uh, baseball, and 
football. I suppose it is surprising that you know a century on from Major Taylor, when he was you know one of the best, one of the best cyclists in in the US and and the world, there are there is still it still remains quite a white sport, doesn't it? And it's not just in the US; it's it's in the UK as well. It's it's certainly in Europe. Yeah, and you know, and I think what's also interesting in that regard is um, is Baltimore, uh, well, Maryland as a state. You have to fact check this on on me, but um, if my wife found out that I was fact checking her, she'd be like, she'd, she'd give me the sada. But she basically was telling me that that equestrian sports are the are the sport of Maryland. And the thing that a lot of Black folks do not know is that a lot of times, a hundred years ago, the jockeys were black because it was not like a glamour thing to do, you know? And so, um, so it's amazing how like a hundred years later, we as a society get away from a lot of these things that were really salt of the earth things to do, you know? And so cycling, of course, was one of them. On the subject of fact-checking, I have just looked at Wikipedia and the last green books were actually published in the mid sixties, mid 1960s. So ah, yeah, well, that would make sense because in the sixties, I was just listening to uh, uh, Fresh Air, which is an um, interview show uh, here in, in the States. And um, Joe Morgan, the uh, Hall of Fame baseball player, passed away. And they did it, uh, an interview where in his first days of playing in the South, he, he's really from California. His first days of playing in the South, he saw segregated sections at the baseball stadium and segregated accommodations for the baseball team. And it, it sickened him so much that he almost quit baseball right on the spot. And uh, I just was like, wow, you know. Just as a quick segue, um, just in preparation for this story, I remember like having a brief email conversation with someone who's from the Deep South. And I realized that I have no idea how people from the Deep South deal with the segregation or and or discrimination that they do. I mean, and I'm talking about black people. As a black person, you know, again, I don't always think about race, but I'm recognized that race is the defining factor in the United States. And I just thought about how if I went to the deep south and experienced life the way they experienced it, I don't know how I would deal with it. I don't know exactly how I would deal with it. And do you think it's getting better, especially after the events of this year? Oh, uh, it's difficult to say. I mean, if I had to say yes or no, I'd say, uh, is it getting better? Yes. But a 1% improvement is almost not noticeable. You know what I mean? So like if you're impatient and I said no, I I could see an argument for that. But I would say it has to be 1% better because if I take a historical track, and think if we were having a conversation like this in 1971, if I was to say no, I think that that dismisses all of the work that people did in order to try and make things better and make them even incrementally better. It's difficult to see, I certainly, I can tell you that. And I think that there's a large chunk of of the United States and probably elsewhere, they do not wanna see uh, people express their pain I'll give you just one quick example. The clip of the Buffalo police pushing that guy over to where he hurt his head. And I'm thinking, what what directive from police 
would would justify that. And then the one policeman out of just human concern went to like help him. And the other policeman was like, no, no, we're not dealing with that. And so some guys laid out on the ground and this guy was white. And now white folks can't see that. If Americans can't see that, that's one of those things I just was like, wow. Now white folks need to see that. Chris Jones, it's a fascinating article. And uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Do uh, enjoy your riding and, and stay safe. Yeah, man. That's the only thing that keeps me sane, man. It's, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot dealing with all this. So it's time to catch up with Ruler's Desire Editor, Stuart Clapp. Now, Stuart, first of all, uh, you must have been a little bit emotional at the weekend when Teo won the Giro d'Italia. Oh, yeah, I was. I was most, I think I was, I was emotional when he won it, obviously, because then it was in the bag. But I think when he won on Saturday at Sestriot, I think that was when I was most emotional. I was watching it and my wife looked across at my little boy and said, I think your dad's just wet himself. But it was, it was amazing and obviously you know you saw it with brad kids from kilburn don't win the tour de france and you know the kids from hackney win win the giro d'italia well they, they do and i know this is like this is going to be the most cliche thing ever but it really couldn't happen to a nicer guy and i say guy although it doesn't feel like five minutes ago he was 14 racing over at, at hillingdon or whatever but I, I, as, as an example and testament to his character which he's never lost i worked for uh, the guys that did Giro over here and uh, a few years, but I think Taylor was probably about 14, 15. I sort of used to flow him out a bit of product, like helmets and his sunglasses and and shoes and stuff. And like this is when he was really young. And like a couple of years went by, I was at the Tour of Britain and so I said hello to Teo and I had met his mum at that point. And he said, Mum, can you come here and say, oh, it's Stuart. Do you remember the guy who used to send me the, the Giro shoes and the helmets and stuff? This is like years have gone by, but it's the fact that he remembered. I was like, you you know, you didn't have to do that. And it's not, you know, I'm not saying it's about me. What I'm saying is it's like, what what a lovely thing to have remembered it. He's not entitled. There was no entitlement there. I'm so happy, not only for him, but for his mum and his brother and his family. Like, that's amazing. I wish, you know, that would have been amazing to have been there and, uh, yeah, what what a what a lad. So what else have you been up to? Are you fully recovered from your inappropriate skateboard injuries? I'm I'm getting there, but I've actually been doing a bit of running as well recently. And um I know that a few people did a bit of running in, in the off season. I know Valverde did. When I ride my bike, there's actually a bit of pressure on my elbows, which feels a bit disconcerting. It's not it's not very nice, it's not very comfortable yet. But um yeah, and I but I put on a little bit of weight. <laughs> Not loads, but I did put on a little bit of weight, like noticeably. Um, I got a little bit jowly, and I thought, oh, you know what? I'll I'll put my running shoes on and and go go and do do a five k. And I tell you what, it's it's bloody hard work, isn't it, running? And the doms are insane. Yeah, it's like when you when you start running, you go for a bike ride, and you ride for half an hour, you go, oh, I can't see home. Look, I'm out in the I'm out in the lanes. The trouble with running is, you run for half an hour, you can turn around and go, oh, I came from over there. It's like you didn't get very far, but um, it's really hard. And the guys at Theragun actually said, oh, because I've got a couple of mates. So they were like, um, do you want to borrow a Theragun Pro? So I've been doing my legs with that. And I know that's a bit of a thing at the moment, isn't it, Theraguns? We had one in the mag. Sorry, is that one of those um, massage things? 
Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. So I'm, I've I've borrowed one of those. Like um, I saw like Sagan have been, uh, used one, and like Daniel Oss was using one. I think a lot of I, I don't quote me on it. I think a lot of the guys from Ineos got them when they were training during lockdown because obviously they couldn't have massages. So I think Theragun hooked them up with all their stuff because they they were using them. I noticed that like Owen Dool had them on his Instagram and things. But yeah, I'm getting there, mate. I'm getting there. My little boy said he wanted to go to the skate park today, but. Huh, I think the, the, he's, he's chucking it down with rain here. So uh, I, I think maybe that might be a blessing in disguise. Very wise. Uh, 20.7, Rouleur 20.7 is out at the moment. Um, uh, any upcoming photo shoots or any, any good kit that uh, we should look out for in the next uh, month or so? Well, issue 100, isn't it? Yeah, we, I'm, we're working on that. We're actually shooting that on this week, end of this week on Friday in London. And uh, it's, it's going to have a bit of a different feel, I think, this this desire shoot. I don't want to give the game away too much, but it's, uh, I don't know, taking things back a step. It's going to be a bit, a little, a little more uh, minimalist, I'd say. I've kind of gone down a bit more of a fashion route with this one. I'm going to pay homage to uh, to uh, Kim Kardashian, but you'll see in issue 100. So uh, I won't say any more than that. We'll keep an eye out for it. Uh, thanks, Stu. That's it from this Ruler Conversations. There'll be a long reads along next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.